Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Heard Tell Show. We're back. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Glad to have you with us because if you uh, went to bed early last night, all hell broke loose in the culture and politics world. We're going to get right into it. Uh, the Politico story, the bombshell story, the leaked first draft of the Supreme Court decision that appears to be written by Justice Alito that would overturn both Roe v. Wade and Casey uh, abortion law in America. This is uh, got a lot of tentacles to it, not just the decision itself, but that it leaked from the Supreme Court in the first place, which has wide ranging implications. We're going to get into that story in just a little bit. We're going to cover it extensively as best we can. It is developing. But we're going to try to turn down the noise and talk about what we do know, what we don't know, uh, what the law says, what the law doesn't say, what this decision would or would not do if it holds up as it's being reported. We'll talk about the abortion in the Supreme Court. Also, a great guest today, uh, Jason Downey. He's the chairman of the Georgia State Board of Education. Uh, also happens to be a West Virginian if you scratch under that Georgia far enough. Uh, Georgia is one of the primary elections to watch. He's got a firsthand seat. He's seen a lot of the mess that's been going on. We're going to talk Georgia elections, Georgia politics. And since he's the chairman of the Georgia Board of Education, we'll talk about education issues that have been all over the news for multiple states. We'll see how he's doing down in Georgia. He just did a major town hall talking out to the people, see what the reactions to that was. Jason Downey good friend of the program on today's program. Now, uh, also, we're going to end the program with a good piece of news. A guy that was saved from a house fire by his pet pig, of all things. Uh, But first, before we get into uh, the really touchy, messy, and what's probably going to be one of the loudest stories any of us have ever covered in a long, long while, I want to talk about Braxton County, West Virginia. Most of you may not even know where that is. If you've ever driven down I-79 going north and south uh, through Appalachia, you've been through Braxton County, Flatwoods, Sutton area. That's pretty much all anybody knows because of the uh, major interstate stop there. Uh, My roots to this area go very deep. My parents both taught at Braxton County High School for over 35 years. Uh, We lived in Sutton when I was first born before we moved downriver to Frametown for 10 or 11 years. Uh, there was an incident a couple days ago, uh, a very troubled woman who I'm not going to name, but you can find it in the news reports. She was 42 years old. Uh, she had a history of attempted suicide. She had a history of mental illness that we understand. She had a lot of problems. She was in a car, an SUV with her eight-year-old daughter. They now have video camera footage of what happened here. They she went careening off the road through the parking lot of what is the Braxton County Senior Center and directly into the Elk River, 
Uh, she never slowed down, never stopped, drove right into the river in what is being now called by authorities a murder-suicide. About a mile away, a man named John Forbush was working. Now, Forbush is a member of the nearby Gasway Volunteer Fire Department. He wasn't on duty. He was actually working. But he was very close to the call. When he heard his call in, like all volunteer firefighters, he had his radio with him. He answered the call. He was one of the first on the scenes. He sees the car in the water, submerged. He knows there's people in the car. And without hesitation, he dove in. The temperature of the water on the Elk River on that night was 38 degrees. Now, some other people came. A total of six men went into the water trying to help out a state trooper, a couple Frametown volunteer firefighters, a couple Gasway volunteer firefighters. John Forbush did not survive. They managed to break the sunroof off the vehicle and get the mother out. They were not able to get the child out initially. The mother and the child did not survive, and John Forbush was washed down river. They found his body about 45 minutes later. Why am I opening with this story? It sounds tragic, and it is. John Forbush was only 24 years old. He had a 13-month-old daughter. He loved horses. He was getting ready to get married. They were looking for a farm so they could raise their horses and their child together and live happily ever after in the beautiful countryside of Braxton County, West Virginia. 67% of all firefighters in America are volunteers. The vast majority are volunteers. Most of them don't get any pay. John Forbush was just working. It was a normal night at work for him, and he saw something that needed to be done, something that he doesn't get paid to do. And without hesitation, he went in the river to try to save two people's lives. We're going to be talking about a lot of ugly stuff on her tell going forward, because not just that the policies are tough and that they're tough issues, but the way people are going to treat each other over them. Nothing brings out the worst in people than debates over things like elections and especially things like abortion that we're going to be talking about due to this Supreme Court decision that's apparently getting ready to come down. We talk a lot about politicians and how they affect our lives, and we tend to avatar them and commentariums, and talking heads. We turn them into avatars that make or break our country. But really, it's the John Forbushes that make or break our country because they do things in our community like just go to work every day, like jump in a river to try to save two people's lives who, unbeknownst to him, one of them had very malicious intentions and to try to help a little girl who was just an innocent victim caught in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. These are the people that really make America work. These are the heroes we don't spend enough time talking about. And even in tragedy, we should highlight them. And thank God that there's somebody out there that would do that, that six people would jump in a river for a perfect stranger. And they didn't know at the time that it was a murder-suicide. Even if they would have known, they still would have done the same thing. So I know most of you probably don't know the name John Forbush. You probably don't know where Braxton County is. You sure don't know where the Sutton Senior Center is, but you should now. And before we get into the other topics of the day, I want you to take a minute and be thankful that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of John Forbushes out there, men and women who just serve their community, who just do their job, who just answer the call when they need to without hesitation. Those are the people that make our country great. Those are the people that will continue to make our country great. And as these dark days come upon us, these are the people that we can count on to believe the phrase, this too shall pass. More Heard Tell right after this.
Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's get into it. Politico has released and published what they say is the first draft of the Supreme Court decision to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey. Those are the standing precedents for abortion in America. Uh, this is apparently a first draft. This is dated back in February, so there's probably already been other drafts written since there. It is authored by Justice Alito. That's important for a couple of reasons. One is normally uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice issues and decides who writes an opinion unless he's in the minority opinion. Then it goes to the senior justice. Assuming what we know about the conservative makeup of the court, the senior justice for a decision like this would normally be Clarence Thomas. So it's interesting that Alito is apparently writing this. That means a couple of different things. This is conjecture now. We don't know this for sure. That usually means either the uh, senior justice, Clarence Thomas, would have wrote it in a way that would not have gotten the majority opinion. So it would go to the next ranking justice. That would be Samuel Alito. So Alito writing it is very interesting. We'll hash that out in the coming days. If we take the document to be valid, which a lot of people seem to think it is, but there's two things that we need to know on the legal side of this. And I'm leaning heavily on Bert Lyko here. He read the whole thing. I've read large swaths of it. I didn't read all of it, but I read a good chunk of it, especially the important parts. We have the entire thing posted at ordinary-times.com in PDF format. So you can search it. You can read it. Please read it as much as you can of yourself. It's about 60 pages. It's pretty dense stuff, but try your best with it. But Bert went through it, sent me some notes on it. So I know what I'm talking about. And we're going to try to get Bert on the show himself. We'll probably have M. Carpenter, our other legal eagle, on at some point in the future. But there's two major things you need to know about here. The first that uh, Lido deals with is stare decisis. Uh, that's the idea that once a legal principle is articulated, the court should stick to that principle. Um, he uh, deals with this by saying uh, that if the case was always wrong, we should overrule it. So whereas in Casey, the court said, well, Roe's been law for 20 years at that time. So while a lot of people don't like it, it's become established precedent. We've seen every single Supreme Court nominee go before the Senate, and they all have to do the dog and pony show of saying the Roe v. Wade is precedent. And we're going to uphold precedent. Alito says the case was always wrong, and therefore we don't have to abide by that. Uh, the other argument he lays out is substan substantive due process. And that's the idea that while certain things were maybe not explicitly set out in the Constitution, that a state just can't do it because they intrude on an important individual right. Um, I'm uh, riffing off of Bert here. Uh, Alito says prior case law provides we can only recognize a right like that if it's got a strong grounding. And until the late 20th century, there was no tradition of abortion rights, which is true. That was the whole thing about Roe v. Wade in the first place. Abortions were criminalized for nearly all of our history until the 1960s. So Roe is overruled and abortion regulations are going to be treated like any other kind of health and safety law. Now, what does this all mean? Well, first of all, what's going to happen uh, if this actually goes through and becomes the decision? Uh, abortion won't be criminalized all over the country. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is this goes back to the states. The individual states will decide for themselves what's legal and what's not legal. So actually, blue or more liberal states, abortion rights will probably expand. Now, there's quite a few uh, red states or more conservative states that already have abortion laws on the books that if Roe v. Wade ever goes down, that will automatically be enacted. There's at least 12 of them, I believe. We'll check on that. But this is going to go pretty quick. Once uh, this decision comes down, the states will start to act. The state legislatures will start to act. But it's going to be like guns and alcohol and other things like that. Each state's going to have a little bit different ruling. 
talk about it this way. We're going to be talking about this probably for quite some time. I want to encourage everybody, do what we did last night. We kind of held our fire. We reached out to legal people that know what they're talking about, like Bert, and we get into the heart of the matter. What we have to do here is we have to maintain our bearing. We cannot lose our heads. I know people are going to be super emotional about this issue. This is going to be a news story like none we've ever covered in our lifetime. People's emotions are going to be high. People are going to lose their heads. We must maintain our bearing. No matter how hard the issue is, nothing's going to be gained if we all lose our minds and start just yelling at each other. I know it's a pitched issue. I know people have strong feelings on it. But we have to treat each other like human beings while we hash out this issue. Otherwise, what's the point? This Supreme Court decision is one of the most consequential since probably the civil rights era. It's going to have wide ranging effects, not just on the specific law and on abortion, but also on how case law is decided. We've already talked about how it sets precedent. Please keep your bearing. Get to the information. Turn down the noise. And we will all work through this together because it's going to be a lot of ugly on social media, in the press, in the news media, and in the courtrooms, we must maintain our bearing, folks, as we work ahead. We're going to continue to talk about this abortion ruling that appears to be coming from the Supreme Court right after this as Hertel continues. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. back to Hertel, just briefly uh, continuing to talk about this Politico story, the bombshell story of this leaked draft. The fact that this leaked is extraordinary. The draft opinion, I'm reading what Bert wrote here, is pretty likely to be genuine. It reads like a pretty classic Alito majority opinion. This statement is not intended as a compliment. While I respect Justice Alito as a jurist, I'm not the court's, he's not the str- court's strongest writer. Um, but it's very apparent that this would be something Alito wrote. It's highly annotated. It's really in-depth. There's a lot of annotation to this. We don't think it's fake. Now, it's complete Kremlinology. That's like the Kremlin to speculate about who is responsible for this leak. Again, I'm reading off Bird here. Anyone other than the reporter who says they know who leaked this draft opinion is just guessing. So be careful. Turn that noise down. But the list of suspects is pretty small. There are nine justices. Each of them have four law clerks. There's some support staff, but the support staff wouldn't know how the justices had voted in the conference. I think the break from tradition resulting in the leak may be aimed at either defusing the political response by previewing the opinion or as trying to get one of the majority to realize that this decision erodes the concepts we talked about earlier. That doctrine is the foundation of the court's claims to be trustworthy and reliable pronouncers of the law, and it is rather what the justice wanted to be. Both of these things, in my opinion, this is Burt writing, point to someone who thinks like Chief Justice Roberts, someone who cares at least as much about the court's claim to legitimacy 
as about the results of this particular case, as important as it is. I may be way wrong, but that's what I'm thinking. And it's really not important unless this becomes something that happens more and more, because if it does, there is less difference between the court and the White House or Congress. And if those kinds of political pressures are going to influence the laws we live under, I'd rather those pressures be out in the open and subject to democratic checks. More Hertel right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. This is going to be fun. We're going to go down to Georgia, talk a little Georgia politics, a little Georgia policy, a little Georgia education. And this is a Georgia feller. He didn't start that way, though. He's actually, you scratch him hard enough, there's a little West Virginia still underneath that. Uh, our friend Jason Downey, he's an attorney. He's also uh, the sitting chairman, Board of Education for the state of Georgia. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Good talk to you. Uh, you, you're like me. The accent's gotten a little softer, but it'll come out. We'll, we'll get to hills and hollers and yonders here in a minute. It'll start sneaking out, <laughs> won't it? That's right. Um, just for clarification purposes, you are a political appointee by Governor uh, uh, Brian Kemp. So we'll lay that out on the table. But your opinion are yours and yours alone. But let's make sure everybody knows that. Let's just start right there because we had some news this week. We had, uh, of course, the Georgia governor debate for the primary for the Republican Party. There's just no way to talk about Purdue without going back to what happened in Georgia in the Senate runoffs. This is where this whole story changes because we had January 6th and the Georgia runoffs. That's kind of the the path break on the narrative for political path that we're on right now. You were there. Go back to that moment because the national narrative for the Georgia runoffs was Trump showed up and it all went sideways. Is that how it felt for you when those Georgia runoffs happened and uh, both Senate seats flipped blue? Yeah, I think so. You had the the two runoffs. And the thing about David Perdue, and again, full disclosure, I I am a Brian Kemp appointee. I'm a friend of the governor. I support the governor. You can go to my Twitter account and see some of the things I said after the debate the other day that the governor had with David Perdue. I have never been a David Perdue fan. I didn't support David Perdue in the primary when he ran in 2014 against Jack Kingston. I supported Jack Kingston at the time. So I have never been a fan of David Perdue, but David Perdue has always been a lazy campaigner. And so one of the the issues that happened in that uh, that race against Senator John Ossoff was that David Perdue didn't show up to the debate. And so John Ossoff had an hour that he could just point at an empty podium and say, where is my opponent? He's not here. And that's sort of been the narrative throughout David Perdue's political career. He's always been a, a lazy campaigner. And now he's got Trump doing his evil work for him, so to speak. Trump is really targeting Governor Kemp because he he thinks, of course, we know that Donald Trump, if you betray him, that's just the worst thing you can do. And that's what's happening now with this race. But, yeah, it all goes back to Trump's involvement way back when, uh, January 5th and 6th, when that happened. And it's been downhill ever since. Now, and to be fair here, uh, Kelly Loeffler was the other candidate in that race. Um, 
I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. She may be the least charismatic stump speech candidate I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I was represented by Nick Ray Hall for many, many years. So that's saying something. Um, yeah. he, that's a West Virginia reference. Y'all go look it up on your own time. Uh, she was a terrible candidate. I mean, just like she, you could not put her, if, if you were doing a TV show, you couldn't put her on TV. She's that bad with a microphone. Um, even with that all said, though, uh, John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock both won their Senate races because it was a special election. Raphael Warnock is up. One thing the national narrative skipped over because they were so busy talking about Trump. Talk about Senator Warnock for just a second, though, because that race, I, I, am I in the minority with some of our friends here? I think he's going to be a really tough out because that race got personal. It got really, really ugly, and it's in recent memory. I don't think people have forgotten. Talk about that for a minute because the national narrative kind of skipped over that a little bit, but that race got really, really nasty in the state of Georgia, didn't it? It really did. The, the thing about uh, Kelly is, and I've, I've known Kelly for for a little while, I supported Kelly as well. But when you have to understand when Johnny Isaacson, Senator Johnny Isaacson retired, it gave Governor Brian Kemp the opportunity to appoint someone. And this is where the falling out began. And there's actually a book about this that a friend of mine, Greg Bluestein from the AJC wrote. And it's about this whole uh, timeline of what happened in Georgia politics. And it really began with Governor Brian Kemp beating Stacey Abrams in 2018 and how everything came from that and was born out of that. So when Governor Brian Kemp appointed Kelly Leffler as senator to replace Johnny Isaacson, there, Donald Trump was very mad. Now, he was president at the time and he really wanted Representative Doug Collins to be that person. That was his handpicked person. And when that didn't happen, that was when the betrayal began in Donald Trump's eyes. And Doug Collins decided to jump in and run anyway. We had what was called a jungle primary where everybody's up at one time. Doug forced Kelly Leffler to move further right. And the whole reason that the governor appointed her was thinking that she could appeal to what we call the Cobb County soccer moms in a lot of ways. Some people call them that. I just I just call them, you know, the Cobb County moderate voters, if you will. That's sort of a microcosm of where we are in the state of Georgia. Cobb County is a county right outside of Atlanta. And I think he hoped that Kelly would be able to appeal to those voters. But when Doug Collins jumped into the race, it forced Kelly to move further right. She had some ill-fated uh, commercials, which compared her to Genghis Khan. It was, it was not the best campaign in the world. But then we got down to, through the jungle primary, it was Raphael Warnock and Robert Warnock and Kelly Leffler. And then it, yeah, it got really nasty right there at the end. Um, and... I will say this, that, you know, Reverend Warnock, I have I have met him. He is a very dynamic individual, uh, very charismatic. It's going to be interesting what happens now. Herschel Walker is probably going to end up being the Republican nominee running against him in that race. Uh, it's um, it, it may get nasty again. Uh, and, and when I say nasty, nasty against Herschel and then nasty against against Senator Warnock. Yeah, I, I don't see this one going good either which way. How much of that nasty, though, is going to be the former president injecting himself because he's made no secret Georgia is his focus. He's spent a lot of time there. Um, I've kind of and some others we've been kind of calling it the vendetta ride. This is this is kind of where him and his folks were planning on getting their revenge. That's not going well with David Perdue. Uh, Herschel Walker looks like he's in a little bit better situation. He's actually leading in some polls. So we'll see how that shakes out. 
is that how it feels there on the ground in Georgia? That This is the national narrative. I'm just looking at it from the guy at the computer. You're physically there. How's it playing? Do people really want Donald Trump involved? Do they want his name and the cachet of that? Or do they want to be left alone to play it out? Or is it somewhere in the middle of that spectrum? Well, it's somewhere in the middle. You do have some people that are diehard Trump fans here. Um, and those are the people that will vote for David Perdue. But when he jumped into the race and when the rumors came about that he was going to jump into the race, you really thought, oh, OK, both may poll in the 40s, both Governor Brian Kemp and and um, and Mr. Perdue. That's that has changed completely internal polling from what I've seen shows that Brian Kemp will get reelected in the primary by maybe over 60 percent, at least in the high 50s. And one might say, well, that's pretty weak for an incumbent. But, you know, you can throw out past politics and the way things have gone in the past because of this juggernaut, if you will, that we call Trump. I think what he's going to do is shift his focus immediately and say, well, David Perdue wasn't the best candidate anyway, which is what he always does. He always tries to justify or caveat everything when he loses. Well, I, I really didn't campaign that hard for him. Never mind that he is putting half a million dollars of his own money into David Perdue's campaign for advertisement right now. What you're going to do is you're going to see him shift and go all in with Herschel Walker and then also his handpicked candidates for lieutenant governor, which are Burt Jones and then Jody Heiss for secretary of state. And I think you're going to see him focus on those three races and he'll just basically he'll stay out of the governor's race. He threatens that he's going to give Stacey Abrams money and support her. He wouldn't do. He's not going to do that. So he'll stay out of the governor's race once David Perdue is sent back to Sea Island, which is where he lives and where he should have stayed, to be quite honest. Yeah. And to be fair, he doesn't have to send her money because he can get people to sit out, which is the same thing. Uh, real quick, just because you just mentioned it, the Heist Raffensperger race. Raffensperger was supposed to be DOA. That wasn't even supposed to be a race. That was supposed to be a layup. Now we got poll. That is Ravensburger got a chance here. Is he going to survive this? Maybe it, it looks weird on paper, and then you're like, "No, nah, that can't be right." But you're there again. You're on the ground. You tell us: Is people surprised? Is 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 the polling just off? What's going on here? Because this doesn't make any sense. It depends on where you are, and I will say this: When you look at the governor's race, you get polling, and as you get closer to election day, you get more and more accurate polling. Lieutenant governor. It's a little bit more iffy, and then it drops off from there. So we've got a lot of local races. State representatives are running for re-election, open seats, state senators are running. And then we've got situations like the Secretary of State. We've got uh, you know races for insurance commissioner. We have no idea what the polling looks like. And all you can rely on is internal polling. And of course, a campaign is going to say whatever the internal polling is that's favorable to them. I will say that it looks like really that there will probably be a runoff and it looks like it's going to be Raffensperger and Heiss in a runoff. And what that means, I don't know. I know that if that happens, Trump will come in and campaign very hard for Jody to win that. But yeah, I, I think a, a few months ago, you thought maybe if Raffensperger got 18 or 20 percent of the vote, he'd be lucky. He's polling. It looks like a lot higher than that, maybe in the 30s. For people that are talking to our buddy Jason Downey down in Georgia, uh, he's also a lawyer on the side. That's why he talks so articulate and such. Um, for for the folks that aren't used to these runoffs, because not every state has runoffs, how big a deal is it for Governor Kemp to not get embroiled in a runoff, even if he was going to win it uh, handily? Boy, those couple of percentage points and not having to do a runoff, how big a deal is that for him? Because we already know, because we've seen the first version of this movie, uh, let's assume it's going to be him and Stacey Abramson. That's going to be a neck and neck, very hard campaign and fight. How big a deal is it for him to get through this preliminary and not have to do the runoff? 
it's a huge deal. You know, the way that Governor Kent became governor is he finished second in the primary when he ran in 2018 to Casey Cagle, who was the lieutenant governor at the time. And Casey Cagle had in the 40s. I mean, it was like 41 or 42 percent of the vote. Everything changed in that six week period up until the, the runoff. And Brian ended up winning and beating Casey Cagle. A lot can change and a lot can happen in that time period between the primary and then the runoff. And in the state of Georgia, a candidate has to have 50 percent plus one vote. So if you have 18 candidates running for us, any any seat whatsoever, the top two candidates are the ones that advance to the runoff if no one has 50 percent plus one. That's why it's so critical for the governor to get that 50 percent plus one because then he can outright claim that he is the nominee. It will galvanize the party and hopefully there'll be some unity. But if six months goes by and there's more divisiveness and more division within the Republican Party, uh, it makes it a lot more difficult to kumbaya at the end when you're done. And it also gives Stacey Abrams a lot more ammunition because now you've got your fellow party candidate that is attacking you and that's just fodder for Stacey to use when she starts spending millions of dollars from Hollywood money in September and October of this year, which is exactly what she'll do. And since you mentioned her, let's let's just I know you're on the Republican side of things, but you're in Georgia. Uh, she has basically been running for governor since the last time she ran for governor. It's no big secret. But she's also put a ton of work in. She's built up networks. Uh, we know about the Bloomberg money that she's been working off through her organizations. She, on paper, looks like she's much more formidable this way. And this was a razor close race last time. How does it feel for you looking just as a candidate stacking up? Does it feel like she's going to be stronger this time? We know there's the specter of Trump. He's not going to be real happy. He's probably not going to be supporting Governor Kemp. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but one of those moving pieces is, do you think Stacey Abrams is a stronger candidate this time than last time? No, I don't think so. I think she will have more outside money. I think she will have more of a national group supporting her, but people in Hollywood, people in D.C., uh, Terry McAuliffe doesn't vote in Georgia, and he just held a fundraiser for her last week. It was all over Twitter. That's not who votes. And if you get out in Georgia, yeah, there are some groups, some people in certain parts of the state that are very strong Stacey Abrams supporters, they will vote for her no matter what. And then you get in other parts of the state and they will never vote for Stacey Abrams. And so the fear tactic that Purdue and Trump have tried to use is, hey, you know what, either vote for David Purdue because we're not gonna vote for Brian Kemp, we'll stay home. I can promise you this, those voters, when November rolls around, they may not want to vote for Brian Kemp, but they sure will not vote for Stacey Abrams. And they and so much so that they will not want Stacey Abrams in office. They will vote for Brian Kemp. So I, I honestly, I think that the governor will get reelected by a larger margin than what he did in 2018. I know that's a bold statement. I think Stacey's got a lot more money this time, but I think she may saturate and, and wear people out. To be fair, he can't do it by much more of a narrow margin because there wasn't much more of a narrow margin to do it. So that might be a low bar to clear. My friend is going to call you out on that a little Absolutely. bit. Talk, talking to our buddy Jason Downey down in Georgia. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to expand out a little bit. Uh, he is on the Georgia State Board of Education. We're going to talk about education. He just did a town hall, uh, was out doing his kind of due diligence in the community. We'll talk about that, how he managed to not go viral. Uh, unlike some other folks doing these education meetings as of late. More perspective on Georgia from somebody that's actually in Georgia. We'll continue with Jason Downey on Herd Tell right after this. 
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to our, our friend down in Georgia, Jason Downey. He's an attorney. He's also on the Georgia State Board of Education. Let's talk about that. You were just out in the public. You were doing some of your due diligence as part of your duties. Um, we've seen so many town halls and so many Board of Education meetings devolve online. Now, of course, those are the ones that make, you know, the hundreds and the thousands of them that go smoothly never get online, but we've seen plenty of them. When you go out in the community, what are you trying to do to avoid that? Because I'm sure you've got people that are hot. I'm sure you got people that are very passionate. I'm sure you probably got some troublemakers out there as well, when, especially when you know, the big guy in the state's showing up in a smaller venue. What's your approach to those sort of things so that it is productive? And you still do, you know, people get their fair shot at an appointee like you. That's fair. How do you approach these things? And, and how did it go now that you got those people, even though it's an election year and passions are probably up a little bit? One thing I have found, people want you to listen to what they have to say. And I think where some school boards in other states, and to be fair, some in Georgia, where they fall short, the local school boards in particular, they don't listen. They won't listen to what parents and stakeholders have to say. That's why it's so important to get out and have these town hall meetings. We're required, State Board of Education members, to have one meeting per year, a minimum of one meeting per year, a town hall which is a listening session, which is created so that people can come and voice their concerns about anything and everything related to public education. We're required to have them in our congressional district. I represent the eighth congressional district on the State Board of Education. So I did one last year. I did another one this year. And I, I get stopped all the time by people at the Publix, at the Kroger, you know, wherever, at Ingalls. And they want to talk about education issues. I think the biggest thing you have to do as an elected or an appointed official is let people talk, let people tell you what they think, what they want to see done, and then offer to work with them. Say, well, what can you do? What can we do together to make things better? What can I take back to Atlanta? What can I take to the state legislators who are the ones that write the laws that impact public education? Who, who, who do you want me to talk to? And I, that has been very receptive. I think the problem we get into these, these town hall meetings that you see where people are cut off and they're not allowed to talk, um, it, it, that's where you get into problems, where you tell people, we don't care what you have to say, we're the deciders and leave us alone. That's been the problem. And so that I've just always had a policy. If you've got something you want to tell me, I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask you how we can change it and what you're going to do to work with me to make it happen. One thing that came out of that too, and this isn't originally me, this was a local official I was interviewing for the radio a couple of years ago when this was really kind of starting to get ugly with some of the issues going on. But he pointed this out, and I thought it was a good point to make. He's like, over and over again, these people are showing up to the school board meeting and goes, well, nobody here believes what I believe. And then I always say, well, yeah, but this is also the first time you're here. Those two things go together. These things are participatory. Do we treat these things too much like they just happen in a vacuum? Like, you know, pick whatever hot button you want to. You know, COVID had people upset. CRT had people upset. But they show up for that one issue, and then they disappear that's not how Board of Education's work when it's functional, because you need to have cohesion and you need to have some continuity to these things and not just have them pop up in a vacuum when there's some major issue that make people uh, excited enough to go to a meeting, right? Well, and that is true. You do have some people that stay engaged throughout the year, that they have issues related to policy that matter to them, and they're going to show up at every Board of Education meeting. They're going to voice their opinions, and, and we respect that. But all the same, if there is something that is so intense that someone feels compelled to show up at a Board of Education meeting, even if it's just one issue and they've never been there before, we have to treat everyone equally. We have to listen to their concerns 
Now, there's a difference between a concern and just absolutely going off and raising holy grief. Um, we, we can't just let people go and, and obstruct and, and, and try to change the way things are done. I mean, if you want to come and have sensible conversation with us, to have sensible ideas and propose solutions or work with us for solutions on whatever it is that bothers you, we're going to work together with you on that, even if it's the first time you've shown up for a meeting or the 55th time. But the problem, you're right. I think what's happened is these school boards are not equipped to know how to deal with the person that comes the one time because they're used to the person that comes every single meeting and they might have 20 people at a meeting. And now suddenly you've got 200 people that show up and you're calling the fire marshal because there's too many people in the room and there's a line and everyone wants to talk and they get mad when you cut them off. And, and I think that's the problem is school boards need to understand local school boards, because in the state of Georgia, the local school boards are actually elected by the local area that they live in. They need to understand that they are accountable to their voters. They are accountable to the people who put them in office and they need to listen to their concerns. Now, that doesn't mean kowtow, but you got to work with them. Yeah, let's talk about something else that's been getting some press in Georgia as far as people trying to govern themselves, sometimes uh, not in a great way. Explain the Buckhead City thing to folks that are not in Georgia. I, I've read on it because I follow it. Trump's been making an issue of this. David Perdue even mentioned it because uh, let's just be grown folk here. Uh, the the money people that back him up is the same people that are behind those sorts of things. But explain that because it sounds like such a weird issue to the outside national audience. Like, what in the world are they talking about Buckhead City? This is a big deal in Georgia, especially in Atlanta, especially in certain communities. This is a really touchy subject. Try to explain that, that uh, f- for folks that don't maybe aren't familiar with the Buckhead City and what that's about. You have several moving parts. And part of it, uh, to understand the history of counties in the state of Georgia, we have a lot of counties here, a lot of counties, over 150. And some of the counties are shaped oddly. Um, and part of that is because during the Depression and in, in other times, but mainly during the Depression, there were some counties that were bankrupt or not doing well, and counties merged. So when you look at the map and you look at Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is, it is very oddly shaped. It's got a, a, a wide part of the bottom and then it gets real narrow and then it gets big at the top. That top part used to be its own county called Milton County. And so there's always been this division between Fulton, North Fulton and South Fulton or the Milton part, if you will, of Fulton County. And it's always sort of been getting into racial undertones here that sort of the white flight of Fulton County has been in the more Northern part up in the, in what was Milton. Okay. And so that's where Buckhead is. And it's part of Atlanta. Buckhead is heading up toward that North Fulton part of, uh, of the County. It's still part of the city of Atlanta, but we have neighborhoods in Atlanta and Buckhead is, is a very strong commercial district where there are a lot of hotels, a lot of, um, uh, you know, law offices, there are some higher end houses that are there as well. So there was a movement that happened and began happening um, by honestly, some outsiders, some people who aren't even from the area uh, down here in the South, we call them carpet baggers. Uh, but they kind of have rolled into Buckhead area and said, Hey, we want to separate from the city of Atlanta we have a tax base up here and we can sustain ourselves. We want to have our own police force. We want to have our own tax allocation districts. 
We want to be our own city. And so that's been the movement there. But there are a lot of other moving parts because what would that do to the city of Atlanta? How would that cripple their tax base? And Atlanta also has its own school system, Atlanta Public Schools. Well, they service Buckhead. So what happens there? Would there be some sort of a, an agreement where Atlanta Public Schools would service the city of Buckhead or would Buckhead City then have to open up its own education district? A lot of moving parts. Yeah, it sounds like a hot mess. Uh, our friend Jason Downey joining us real quick while we still got you for a few minutes here. Um, we know the midterm election going forward. What's the state of Georgia? It, it, are we still calling it a purple state? Do you do you feel like because we know the two Senate seats flipped, but there was also some special circumstances of that. We know the Republicans are going to do well in the midterm, regardless of how the, the state house in Georgia goes and what's probably going to be a close race. How does it feel because Georgia, you know, Atlanta keeps growing. Uh, Georgia is diversifying. But then you also have these really, really red districts like we've seen with like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world where they, you know, apparently will elect anybody. Um, just as somebody that's lived there for a while, somebody that loves the place, give the state a play to the outside observers, because this seems like this is going to be a battleground area for a long, long term to come, because a lot of national type issues are kind of microcosmed in Georgia, not just in Atlanta, but the state of Georgia itself, too. Well, I, I think what happened in the, the most recent elections is you had a lot of newer voters. You, you do have an influx of population. I mean, Georgia, I believe, is the eighth largest state now in population. We have uh, like with North Carolina. We're right there neck and neck with North Carolina. The difference between Georgia and other states like us is that we've got about seven million people that live in the metro area of Atlanta. And the, the politics have really been as such that new voters tend to trend toward the Democrat Party. And so what has happened is you are seeing and you did see in 2020 what is born out of that. I mean, Stacey Abrams, you mentioned she put in a lot of work. She really got a lot of new voters out there and excited. What I wonder, and I, there's no way to really tell because you never really know how a party is going to react to certain issues down the road. If I had to say, is it going to stay a battleground state for a while? Yes. Now, in 10 years, what's that going to mean? I don't know, because I don't know what the issues are going to necessarily be that impact those new voters. Right now, they're, they're brand new. They tend to be minority voters. They tend to trend with the Democratic Party, and that's why they voted the way they did. Will they continue to do that in 10 years? I really don't know. Yeah. Jason Downey, our friend down there. Okay. Two quick questions for you to round this up. Uh, talking a little Georgia. You're a Georgia guy. You're a Marshall guy. Can I get an unbiased opinion on JT Daniels? Yeah. So it, it's <laughs> interesting when I saw, listen, when I saw all of the schools he was looking at and then he was going to WVU, I, I remember I said, well, I, not that I didn't like WVU to begin with being a Marshall guy. I'm just going to be honest. But if he go, if he goes up there now, I can get my Georgia friends to really hate on WVU even more. Not, you know, I, he's he is a, a great quarterback. I think he's going to be a great fit for the offense that, that Neil's got up there. Uh, I hope he does well. It, you know, it Kirby Smart, the issue is when you've got a coach like that and he's just an unbelievable recruiter, uh, you can't recruit 15,000 quarterbacks that are five-star. Eventually, one of them is going to go somewhere else. So I wish JT all the best. Um, I just, you know, I'd like for him to throw for 500 yards every game and then the defense give up a bunch of points and WVU lose every game. But that's just me. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's not so much anymore, but for those that are unfamiliar, uh, WVU is the state school and Marshall is those Valley kids that are all uppity and privileged and what such. That's not really true so much anymore, but it is the private school and W that's, that's kind of the running joke here. So, right. and you're one of those thundering herd grads. So defend your school, please. I am. Yeah. Mar I, I'm proud to be a thundering herd Marshall grad. And, and I graduated from there in 2000. I, I, I loved spending time in Huntington. Um, I, you know, I come back to West Virginia about once a year, and it, it's it's always interesting to see um, all the WVU stuff and then all the Marshall stuff. And of course, I live right out I live grew up right outside of Charleston, so I don't want to say it's divided. It's definitely probably more sixty five percent WVU, and I understand that it's the flagship school, flagship university, and the larger school. So I, I don't begrudge that. Um, it, it is what it is. I, I I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> Don't look at me, man. We all went to Glenville. Um, yeah, Jason Downey, uh, uh, women's basketball national champions. Thank you very much for uh, Division One A. Well, it's not One A anymore; it's two Division Two now. I saw uh, that. That's that's exciting for them. That, that's that's a you know it's deal. exciting. We've we've had two national championships that have come out of the state now with Marshall winning in soccer. You know, I had to throw yep. that in. You know, that yep. heard. But that's it's exciting when you can bring um, good attention to the state. Through, through college athletics and and especially when it's the smaller programs that people kind of sleep on. That's exciting for Glenville. And you're going to get to see a lot more, Marshall, because they changed conferences. They're going to be down south a whole bunch now, including Coastal Carolina, close to where my Carolina house is. I got connections with Coastal Carolina. I'll get to go watch probably a game or two down there. All right, one more for you, sports-related, since we were talking politics. What are we going to do about our poor beloved Reds? Because it's, it's, it's bad. I, I have no idea. I, I, I wish we could do a GoFundMe and try to buy the team from – from Castellini, we could pay him in Skyline Chili or uh, Grater's ice cream. I, I really don't know. I, I just it, it it pains me. I have been a Reds fan. There's a picture of me as a baby with a Reds jersey on. I mean, I've rooted for the Reds all my life, but it's tough. It it is really tough to support what Castellini is doing with that team and what they're doing. I mean, they had what ten thousand last night's game. That's sad. I mean, it, the Braves here now. Granted, they just won the World Series, but on a Tuesday night game, they're going to draw thirty thousand people. And you can't sustain having a team in Cincinnati with only 10,000. But I think Castellini wants to send a team to Nashville anyway. So I, I don't know. But it, 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 it's heartbreaking. Yeah, the MLS team should not be outdrawing the Cincinnati Reds. And I love MLS. That's, that's not a knock on them at all. I'm just saying that's how things have changed when you're selling out Nypert Stadium for an MLS game and you can't get people in the ballpark for a Reds game. There's problems. I, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the March shot years and the, the disaster piece that was for years and years and years. But we're, we're kind of getting not with all the, the things that she said, the racial stuff, obviously. But as far as mismanagement of the team, we're kind of starting to get into that territory a little bit. And I don't like it one little bit. Jason Downey, let's do this more often, buddy. Absolutely. Um, love talking to you until we get you back on the show again, because George is going to be that's one of the races to watch. So we'll definitely have you on here again soon as the race develops, especially after we get the primaries out of the way. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on until they see you on Hertel again. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Jason E. Downey, B.O.E. Uh, Andrew and I follow each other. So uh, we, we retweet each other a time or two. You can follow me there. I've also got a couple of Facebook accounts, Jason E. Downey and, um, you know, Follow me. Uh, you'll you'll see all kinds of crazy stuff about the Reds, uh, anti-WVU stuff, and maybe a little politics here and there. He's one of these bourbon snobs, too, so watch for him for the Twitter Supper Club hashtag. I'm sure he'll start putting a drink or two on there with some opinions thereof as well, my friend. Uh, Jason Downey, thanks so much for the time today, sir. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Take care. Appreciate it, sir.
tell. Okay, we need some good news after all that today. Uh, this one's from our buddy Keith Conrad, his newsletter that he puts out every day from iHeartRadio. <laughs> Cue the There Goes My Hero music by the Foo Fighters. A U.S. Navy veteran is forever indebted to his beloved 500-pound pet pig for saving his life when he was home in New Jersey, ignited into a blaze. 30-year-old Gilbert Ayana, who lives in Union Township, said that his pet pig Hamilton allotted him some extra time to escape the house earlier this month by closing the door to the garage as the flames battered the other side of it on the night of April the 11th. The fire department said that him closing the door bought me 15 to 20 minutes. If he doesn't shut that door, the fire and smoke would have spread faster, said Ayana to the post. Ayana is a combat medic that did tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. Firefighters who responded to the scene were able to put the fire out, which ultimately resulted in the surge protector that short-circuited and lit Hamilton's bedding on fire. The sparks and flame awoke Hamilton, who then reached by running inside and closing the door behind him, something Ayana had trained him how to do. It was basically licking the wooden support beams, Ayana said. It was literally sleeping against the wall that was on fire. When he awoke, he first feared the worst for his beloved Hamilton. After rushing and kicking in the closed door, he realized that the clever feller had managed to get outside safely, where he was calmly grazing in the yard with his home devastated from the fire ayana has been staying with a friend where hamilton has been living in a makeshift tent in the yard as the property owner rebuilds what was damaged an online fundraiser has been set up by ayana's sister to aid him with post-fire expenses may we all have a pig that knows when to hold the door against the fire and save everybody's life we need a little uplifting that was a heavy episode of her tell but that'll do it for today we'll be right back at it again tomorrow uh this ain't the tickle your ears show this is the deal with the things that need to be dealt with show and we have to deal with tough topics sometimes uh there's going to be some really tumultuous days ahead with the type of topics that are going to be all over the news like the supreme court ruling like we're getting ready to start doing the primary voting for the midterms we're going to do our best to turn down the noise get to the facts on the ground deal with people fairly and as people and not get lost in all the caterwauling and forget that at the end of the day, we're all going to be in this thing together trying to make our country a little bit better. So until we talk to you again tomorrow, uh, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Wherever you and yours are, cross the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.